Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network. Today I am not engaging with the new book, but with our sister program, Postscript. Postscript was developed to provide a space for topical engagement among scholars on a current issue or event. And there isn't much that is more current at the moment than Barbie. So welcome to Postscript and our conversation about the Barbie movie. I'm joined by four excellent scholars to chat about all things Barbie. Linda Beale, professor of political science at Point Loma Nazarene University. Susan LaBelle, my co-host on the New Books in Political Science channel at the New Books Network and professor of political science at St. Joe's University. Danielle Hanley, assistant professor of political science at Clark University and Shuchi Kapila, professor of English at Grinnell College. There's so much to say about the Barbie movie and the summer phenomena that this movie has become. It is more of an event than simply a film, but we will get into some of that as we discuss Barbie. This movie hit the theaters less than four weeks ago on the same weekend that Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer was also released. This led to the weekend being titled Barbieheimer, and much has been written about how these two films may well have saved the movie industry. Both films are not sequels. They are not already established parts of a film or cinematic franchise like Mission Impossible or the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They are both original intellectual property, or IP, and that opening weekend shattered a bunch of records in terms of box office sales. So let's get into some of our conversation about Barbie, a movie that has now surpassed the billion dollar mark and was helmed by a woman, Greta Gerwig, written by Gerwig and her partner, Noah Bernbach. This makes Gerwig the first female million do- billion dollar director. But the first question I want to pose to my um, fabulous interlocutors today is about our, each of our individual relationships with Barbie. I can start out by saying that I had Barbie dolls. Um, I had a uh, Barbie camper van. Um, I don't believe I had a dream house. Um, And I always lost the shoes. The shoes were always lost. Uh, And that was always troubling to me because I, I wanted... Barbie to have these beautiful shoes, of course. Um, and so I, I definitely played with Barbie dolls. And I also saw that um, at a certain age, my daughter was like a tractor beam when she saw a Barbie backpack among her camper friends. She had not seen anything like that before. And it so enticed her that she literally was drawn to the person's backpack. Um, but I'm going to toss it over now to my colleague in the New Books Network, Susan LaBelle. What was your initial or individual relationship with Barbie? Well, my mother didn't buy toys. Um, You had to make them yourself. It was very, I lived in a very throwback world with very throwback older parents, but I inherited the original Barbies from a cousin. So in the movie, many of the actual items were things that I owned from the sort of original um, outfits. Um, I loved the details. I never lost the shoes. Um, And in fact, there is one shoe that I did lost, which was a a mule, a red mule, plastic mule that I looked for for years. Um, I didn't love the dolls. So I didn't feel that kind of um, passion, I think, that many people feel about Barbie. Um, And I lived in a very non-capitalist household that sort of um, poo-pooed things like fashion. So um, I think I had sort of absorbed some of that. My daughter never asked for Barbie. She never got Barbie. I never pushed it. And uh, neither of my other two kids uh, wanted it. So that that's my Barbie history. Thanks, Susan. Shuchi, tell us a little bit about your Barbie experience, or shall we say non-experience? <laughs> yes, I think. I think so. Um, so I grew up in India. And in the sort of pre-1990s, non-globalized India, um, you know, there were no Barbies that were available to me. Um, I remember somewhere in the 70s, my father had gone to possibly the U.S. I don't even remember exactly where, but there was this doll that was brought back that was looked on with, you know, great interest that had blonde hair and blue eyes and was sort of like an oddity for us. Uh, and my my brother, who's three years younger than me, promptly lopped off its head. Um, and that was the end of, you know, any kind of, 
doll that I had. Uh, and when my daughter was growing up, uh, also, I somehow we had no interest in Barbies. I think for us, it was more the, the American doll. And she loved a kind of the brown Josefina and, you know, played with, the, uh, with her and was fascinated by the little book that accompanied it. So it's a sort of a non-experience. I don't remember being fascinated by Barbie. And um, historically, it wasn't until the late 1980s that Mattel decided to introduce the Barbie into India, you know, wearing Indian clothes, but still blonde and blue-eyed. So that's the kind of <laughs> brief history of Barbie in India. Thanks. Uh, Linda, you're up next. Well, I did have Barbies growing up, but it was a little bit of a convoluted, tortured relationship because um, just like you see in the film, kind of this uh, paradox or this discomfort with is Barbie sending the wrong messages about body images or hypersexualization? My mom was really concerned about this. And so I briefly had Barbies and then she took them away um, so that they would not miss malform my my imaginary space and then finally uh gave in and since i played with them at all my friends houses she just gave them back to me so um i really understood the dilemma that the filmmakers were facing about how to approach this problematic potentially problematic um image of a woman i um i I will tell you as an adult, some of my most prized possessions um, are a set of Barbies that they started making in the 1990s and have made every presidential election year since, um, called Barbie for President. Um, it started out as a project with actually the White House project trying to get more women elected. But the first President Barbie appears much like the one in the movie um, doll with a big fluffy inauguration gown. On. Um, and then over the years, they've gotten a little bit more into like suits and behind podiums and things like that. And this most recent iteration was very cool because it wasn't just Barbie as president by herself, but it was actually her vice president, her campaign manager, um, a whole team of, of women around her being really smart and political. And so I have loved watching that evolution over the years, and it entertains my students greatly when they come into my office. <laughs> Thanks, Linda. <laughs> Danielle, tell us about your experience with Barbie. Yeah, I mean, I had Barbies growing up, but I don't ever remember opening Barbies. Like, I just, I have this memory of this big, like, bin of Barbies and Barbie clothes and Barbies with, like, messy hair and also, like, limbs pulled off because I think my brother at some point had, like, gotten into the Barbie bin. So I don't remember ever, like, getting a Barbie or trying to like keep a Barbie like pristine or keep the shoes. It was just like all part of like hand-me-down toys that we had gotten. Though I did have a Barbie Corvette that was like the only accessory that I must have gotten for a birthday or something. That was like, it feels like a more extravagant present than I, than otherwise. I must have gotten it from someone for a birthday, but that was like my prized possession that I wouldn't let any of my siblings touch and inevitably like my brother broke it. <laughs> But I, I, like, the thing that's interesting to me about sort of the discourse around Barbie, like, to touch on the body image stuff is, like, that's never, that was never how I thought about Barbies or, like, I'm sure that I internalized part of it. But to me, this was just, like, a, a toy that I played with and not, like, a representation of a human. And I don't know when I, like, came to that decision. So to see the way that it gets taken up in other households by other people more, more, like more globally. Like I was never reflecting that deeply on Barbie, but I really appreciate that that's sort of like where the discourse has gone. And, and again, this sort of leads us into the broader question about this movie movie has now passed. It's, it, it's inching up um, beyond a billion dollar film, which for a movie that cost, I think it was about $145 million to make, um, is a fairly good return on your investment. Um, and, and it's, it's, you know, again, it's smashed a lot of 
records in terms of now it is Warner Brothers biggest box office domestic box office ever having surpassed the dark knight um another christopher nolan film um so we have we have this sort of ip property that greta gerwig made and you know i'm always intrigued by the conversations that are like oh women buy tickets to the movies um and then people forget that women buy tickets to the movies <laughs> And then they go, oh, women buy tickets to the movies. Um, but that aside, um, I'm I'm curious about what you all think of as the significance of <clears throat> not only the movie but the event. Um, we're we're deep in the Barbie event. This has sort of been a, a marketing um, extravaganza that that people are now studying um, because of the success from pink Crocs um, to I think like Louis Vuitton luggage um, <clears throat> and everything in between. So, if I were to pose the question to all of you, what is the significance of Barbie? Anybody want to jump in? Well, I'll start by saying that, you know, I think this has provided um, a catharsis for many people, um, particularly, I'll just speak to it from the United States, um, that this has been a rough couple of years for American women. I think the election of Donald Trump, whether you support him or not, accompanied a kind of language around women, the idea of grabbing them by the pussy is something that you would never have heard in an American election. Yet it was normalized and repeated and amplified. And that is something that even the most committed Republican women, many found problematic. Um, and if you match that up with Dobbs and all of the rulings coming down as of yesterday on Mifepristone, we, we, I, I see the movie for one group of people as a form of catharsis that they've been felt beat up and they get to go in the theater. And I know Greta uh, Gerwig has actually used this herself, so I'm not, I'm not, this is not really original. And then I think for others, it's just been a learning experience. So I think it's kind of two very different camps of people who've walked in. And I know we're going to talk about feminism and et cetera later, but that that's where I sort of land as the big takeaway that I have. Linda. I think it's also part of uh, a bunch of things happening this summer that are very women centered. Um, so we just had the era's tour with Taylor Swift come through Los Angeles um, and it just consumed the entire conversation and everybody's attention and all my social media Um and I think between the Beyonce tour and the Taylor Swift tour and the way that those are also going to make a billion dollars and break records and everybody going to Barbie. I mean, I've been to Barbie multiple times with different groups of people and we all dressed up and wore pink and, you know, all the things. And I think there's a, a joy to it, a happiness to it. Uh, and also kind of this post COVID, like, let's go do something together. Let's be with a lot of people and let's be happy and joyful. And, um, even a little bit less, maybe like hipster, ironic, cynical, like we're all too cool for everything. Let's just revel in something that we love or have fun with. Yeah. <clears throat> so just to follow up on what Linda said, um, I think the fun part is really important. And it's also there as a theme in the film. Um, when Gloria says, I just never have fun, right? Um, and I was thinking so much feminist theory talks about the fact that the first thing to go when women do the double burden, they were, I, I mean, I loved its reference to kind of second wave feminism themes as, and then of course there's, it's a, it's a sort of contemporary riff on it. So when I went to see Barbie, I was also struck that they were young Indians, um, Indian women wearing pink. Um, who had arrived at the theater. So they were also having fun with it. And there was this kind of determination to have fun rather than go see other serious films, you know. So of course there was the kind of, as you said, the, you know, the choice between the two movies issue. Um, but I was sitting next to a woman who said that she was in marketing and she had come to um, see what the hype was all about. 
So she was clearly impressed more by its marketing and the success of that in India when the doll itself had not been a success initially. Um, and, you know, she was, I think she was kind of um, overawed by how successfully it, the movie had uh, kind of appeared in India. But definitely, I would say younger audiences. Younger audiences, it spoke to them much more than, um, which I find curious because so many of the themes I felt, you know, should speak to women of another generation. And more on that if we get on that topic. Danielle. Yeah, the the fun thing is is feels like really important and it feels linked to both like this idea that it's post COVID, we want to do something together, but also that like, this is a kind of like catharsis or like Susan, I would maybe put what you said in terms of a reclaiming, right, like, which feels like absolutely like related to jobs related to the stuff in Ohio it's sort of a like I like I am staking my claim in something but it's I'm staking my claim in the serious parts of that and also in the in the fun parts of that and that those things don't have to be like um antithetical to one another but actually like can inform like a fuller version of the way that we like experience life i'll just like the last thing i'll say on this is so i did barbenheimer like john my co-author my co-author and my co-host on the not quite great not quite great books podcast we saw barbie in the morning and then saw oppenheimer at night which was like a very intense movie going day Um, and like, we did it because like, we listened to a podcast that was like, you should do it. And then we debated what the order was. Like, it was like an event for us. And I feel like it's been quite a long time because of the last like few years, because of just like, of, of everything going on. It feels like it's been a long time since there was like a movie event like this. And I feel like that you can't detach that from the like, the significance of of Barbie as well. Yeah, I I think that the event nature is one that I'm finding really interesting because this seems to also go to the heart of going to the movie theater, which, you know, in in the sort of COVID, post-COVID period has been one where there's a great amount of concern. And of course, we have the Hollywood strikes at the moment um, because of sort of some of the management issues around intellectual property and paying writers and actors a living wage and so forth that, you know, the, the idea of going to the movie theater, as Linda said, getting dressed up in pink um, and and sort of having that particular experience is one that most of us had sort of let go of um, on some level. And and the, the Barbie Heimer weekend, I think, really contributed to that um, in an interesting way. Uh, <clears throat> and so you all made nods towards feminism. So I'm going to bring it up front and center. Um, And this movie does some very interesting sort of moves around feminism um, and different, different sort of aspects of feminism. Specifically, obviously, it is a pretty... Um, white and Western feminism um, that we see portrayed in the film. Um, But it does sort of get into some of the discussions about what feminism really kind of is. And of course, the question of patriarchy. (laughs) Um, So who wants to lead off with regard to these questions that I think are at the heart of what Gerwig was trying to get at here? Danielle. I mean, I'll, I'll start. I, so first I just have to call out the, the line where, where Ryan Gosling as Ken is like, when I learned that patriarchy like wasn't about horses, I just kind of (laughs) lost interest. Like I was, I, there's nothing. That was my favorite line of the entire movie. Like there's something so perfect about it where it's like oh yeah patriarchy is like just this thing that exists in the world for like the white male character to say and like this is a thing that like so much of the rest of the the like universe is now grappling with right and grappling with the like decisions that he and his friends have made about like like horse patriarchy like it's just like it's it's too perfect um that like 
oh, I kind of lost interest in this thing that's boring that is literally like putting not only the other characters into the ground in this movie, but also like putting the rest of the world into the ground in like really particular ways. But it's like, oh, it's this thing that's not that interesting to me. Like there's something really like artistic and also just like very messed up about that. <laughs> and that, that was a perfect line. <laughs> Uh, Linda what do you got for us well I think a lot of the jokes I mean I love the horses and patriarchy stuff and I think a lot of the jokes do a really deft quick way of explaining a lot of feminist critique you know when in the motel boardroom they're like we can't be sexist even though we're all white men here because we are sons of mothers and nephews of aunts and you know or the whole like the mansplaining of the godfather or the singing at you with the guitar or you know there's just so many moments in this movie that just illuminate yes this is exactly what it feels like to be overlooked or not taken seriously or you know how men get these places they feel really entitled to that they haven't done anything to earn or whatever so I think it does a really good job of that but I also think it does a really good job of something I really appreciate because and and I think the misguided critiques of it are like oh it's so anti-men or whatever It, it doesn't in fact say let's just flip it right let's just have women in charge instead of men and we'll get our our power back at their expense or whatever instead it really shows the demeaning and damaging nature of anybody objectifying anybody else um and barbie apologizes to ken at the end for how she did that to him um, and so I think the the way that Bell Hooks says feminism is for everybody. It's about dismantling systems of dominance. It's about not objectifying and dominating others. Um, I think that message comes through really beautifully and powerfully in this film. Susan. And I think going off on what Linda just said and what you opened with uh, about this really not being, it, it, on the one hand, it is uh, gets to the essence of feminism, but also it treads pretty lightly. What I think is is interesting about this is, is again, how the film always operates at these two levels. It's introductory in terms of its feminism for people who have no idea. And then it has these sort of very small, kind of like when they say Proust Barbie, these small things in which the people who are steeped in feminism can sort of see what's going on. So she's sort of speaking to two audiences. And I think the brilliance of the film is that she was willing to speak to that audience that doesn't use the word patriarchy in their everyday vocabulary. And those are the millions of people who you know, are, uh, maybe wouldn't have been exposed. So I, I think that's a really important piece of this film that uh, that she's reaching that. And the, and I think we can see how successful, not just in the number of people buying tickets, but also in that reaction, the conservative reaction to how, how many times did they say patriarchy? I wrote it down. I'm going to burn the doll. I mean, I, I think that's unbelievable, the idea that you would boycott or set fire to a doll because this fairly tame feminism that you've picked up is offending you. The the speech that America Ferreira makes, I think for me, is the highlight of the film. And a lot of people were leaning in in the New Jersey theater that I saw it uh, at because I think that resonated with a lot of people. And it's not theoretical it's experiential. It's a it's a distillation of a lot of feminism into a language that is so plainly understood by central New Jersey audiences, not just people who teach bell hooks. Chuchi. Um, yeah. So I I felt you know I was struggling with this kind of. Uh, uh, the sort of universal appeal or the fact that its entire semiotics is very much Euro-American. Um, and I do think that it does a great job, just to echo some of what, you know, you have, Susan and Linda and Danielle have already said, uh, it does a great job of touching on those themes, I think, that are very present in Indian society, like 
the whole idea of a woman is expected to be everything that you know you just referred to. Um, and I was thinking even as recently as um, when Hillary Clinton was running for president in America, right? There was this this thing came up again and again. She doesn't cry. She doesn't show emotion. I mean that that I just felt like it uh, did a great job of hitting the nail on the head. So I think for for Indian audiences. Um, the hypersexualization of Barbie has always been troublesome, and you touched on it earlier. And so there is a little ambivalence in the way the whole concept has been received. But I felt that the movie did a great job of uh, touching on some of these, uh, you know, themes that come to us from this kind of second wave feminism, the tokenism, the tokenism that you know we in the sort of she finds an all-male board and uh, they're still protesting that they're doing okay. That that whole idea, I think, in the professional world is still very much with us in almost every field. Um, and I think it really speaks to uh, Indian audiences, um, that part. Uh, I also, of course, would just want to kind of note that this whole idea of waves has also been critiqued. I don't know if you've seen Leela Fernandez's great book. Um, she has in that um uh, and a chapter on race and transnational feminism where she says that it conceals a lot more than it reveals if you say second wave and third wave because obviously as we know you know there isn't like that division and I feel like the the kind of um, contemporary presence of many different kinds of feminist agendas um, is very very vivid and present in India which makes it a very exciting place to you know do this kind of feminist work um, I laughed out aloud and maybe I was the only one because I was thinking about the whole tradition of rock music when he said, can I play my guitar at you? And I just thought that was so funny. I almost fell out of my chair laughing. Um, and uh, But then the thing that I I still want to think through and I want to know what you all think is that, that amazing first scene where they're you know, smashing the dolls and the dolls are infants. And also another thing we've we are now dealing with, right, are the kind of abortion debates in the United States. Um, and in sort of, in a very different way, the whole question of population, which which is inflected very differently coming out of colonialism and a kind of post-colonial nationhood is also present here. And the question of abortion that still doesn't actually, it doesn't empower women in this situation, in this context. It's in fact, uh, has you know led to kind of gender selection, for instance, which is a huge problem. Um, so I was sitting there and thinking, that scene needs to be read so many different ways. There's like this gigantic Barbie and these really kind of furious young girls who are smashing these dolls. And then there's this, you know, one of the, the baby dolls is kind of up in this. I mean, it's it's it has a certain violence that was interesting to me. And I wanted to think about that. So I'll just stop there. Uh, Susan. And not just violence, but also this um, hearkening back to a male uh, director, you know, Stanley Kubrick and his movie. I mean, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think this movie is very limited. I, 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 and I want to talk a little bit later about some of the conversations in my house as a trans parent about the limitations of the movie. But, but in, I, I think this is very American, very limited. I don't think that means it's not good, but I don't think anybody should be arguing that this is a uh, universal message, or I mean, it is resonating. I read in the Times yesterday about how it's resonating in in Saudi Arabia. That's all very important, but I don't think she made this movie with that uh, vision. I don't think that vision is represented in the movie. And the way I read the opening, smashing again, I just read too much about abortion. Is that the whole movie is about abortion? The whole movie ends with a vagina and going to the gynecologist, and it opens with saying, I don't want to play with baby dolls. I'll play with whatever I want. Um, and, you know, and I think, look, the, 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 the film's maybe sort of its genius is that it's so binary. It sort of accepts so much that is traditional, and then it sort of starts, tries to do some of its work in those in those bounds. But, you know, I, I agree with you that even in the U.S. context, she's missing that the sterilization of uh, Latina women in California uh, 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 
and the and African American women in California prisons, this when you want to talk about reproductive freedom in the United States, if you're talking about all Americans, you're really talking about the right to have a child, the right to have that child supported, the right to be seen as a person who is of value and bringing valuable children into this world. So I I couldn't agree more that it's limited. I still had fun and I still think it's valuable, but I don't ever think we should claim this as the best feminist movie ever. Danielle. Yeah. I mean, it's, it feels important to like call out the limitations and also just like, I think both of both of you are trying to do like hold the limitations together with the things that it opens up. Like, I think part of the genius of this movie, right. is like, you can like, you can interpret so many different pieces of it in so many different ways. Like when I saw Shuji, when I saw the first scene, I wasn't thinking about the violence because like my brain was like thinking about the Kubrick of it all. And I was like, okay, if this is the only scene of this movie I see, this is genius. I'm, I'm here for it. But you're absolutely right. Like that when we read the smashing of the baby dolls alongside like the way in which motherhood threads so much through, especially like the last third of the movie more than anything else, but it threads through the whole movie, right? Like, there is, of course, like a subversive set of moves that the movie is making and also always a limitation to the subversion. And I think that probably ties us into like the capitalism and the neoliberalism of it all too, right? So like that, I, I guess like the, the thing that I, I've been debating with a number of my friends about this movie, I have friends who are like really like, oh, this is just a movie that reinforces patriarchy which is a wild take to me. And then friends who are, who are like, oh, this is a radical feminist message. And it's like, well, it's also like all of the things in between that. And like, I'm not ready to be like, this is a, a radical feminist movie, but like, this is a movie where I am going to show like America Ferrara's monologue in my intro WGS class, because I think on the one hand, it's important for students who walk into that class who for whom feminism is a bad word, right? and they're searching for something and it's also important to like read that through the lens of socialist feminism read that through the lens of a more post-colonial version of feminism read that through the lens of the scum manifesto right like what are the ways in which this is at once provocative and also limited and i think like it's good to have that conversation Linda. Uh, rant over <laughs> The wonderful thing about this film is all the conversations that it is sparking. And I think it has a lot of layers and a lot of different ways that things can be read. So it makes for a really interesting conversation, which is why I'm really glad we're doing this. Like you guys are making me think about this in so, so many good ways. Um, I will say that one of the things um, that I appreciated about that first scene was the kind of motherhood isn't the only destiny anymore, which I do think that is a part of the Barbie experience of the last, you know, 50, 60 years or whatever, is that this is a doll where you could experiment with what do I want to be when I grow up if it's not a mom, or that's not the only thing I have to be. Um, And yet the film does such an amazing job, as you guys have said, about threading motherhood through like it's not just a a knee-jerk rejection of motherhood and so even all the things you were saying Susan about for whom is this a possibility or for whom has this been more um more obstacles placed in the way structurally like it opens up I think those questions of what is the place of this in women's lives and how much freedom or um, power or support do we have in doing it I also just thought it was amazing. I mean, can we talk about Weird Barbie? Because Weird Barbie is one of my favorites. And Kate McKinnon is awesome. And um, when she holds up the stiletto and the Birkenstock in, in that kind of Matrix moment, and, and it's like, you have to choose. And Barbie, like so many of us, so many women and girls are like, the stiletto, please. That was happy. That was easier. That was nicer. Why would I want the thing that is harder? And I, I, that might be really basic feminism, but I find that it just rings true over and over again of every new generation of young women of like, wait, do I want the existential responsibility of my own life and all the problems that come with it when I'm being offered 
um, in my culture or in patriarchy a role to play that I could succeed at and maybe just be kind of happy and not think about death or whatever <laughs> the crisis is. And and again, I think that that you know, even just that um, binary choice leads us into that question of neoliberalism um, that undergirds it. Go ahead, Susan. Sorry, before we do neoliberalism, I just want to say one thing about the binary, just because uh, like conversation, I, I, I cannot agree more that this idea that this film has opened conversation and that you can have so many different conversations. And I have had many, one of my friends is a psychologist psychiatrist and also a pagan. And we have talked about the myth of Inanna and how it maps onto this film. We have talked about how this is not a film about feminism, but just a film about death, that the whole thing is about her wanting to die and thinking about death and becoming a mortal. And that's why she's going to the gynecologist. Anyway, I've had many conversations, but the one that I just want to make sure I represent here, because I, I think it speaks to a lot of people's experience who are looking at the very simple gender binary that uh, the film creates and seeing that uh, this kind of um, uh, distillation of a certain kind of femininity leaves them out because they are more on the edges. And and when you mentioned the Kate McKinnon character, right, weird Barbie, the sort of this, this uh, is the, the queer representation is somebody with the legs that are bent the wrong way and has like marker uh, on her face. So what do non-traditional people do in this world? Well, there is a place, it's limited, there's weird Barbie. Um, but, you know, uh, one of my kids is trans and really felt strongly that they liked the movie, but they didn't like that some of their uh, friends presented it as like, this is a great statement about gender. And what they felt was like, well, it's not because it actually isn't really taking on, you know, what is in between those, that very, very simple binary and and dealing with uh, it maybe indirectly it's dealing with how broken that that is that we have those choices um but you know uh, the the focus on the vagina the focus on uh you know men versus women barbie versus can there are some very, very small breadcrumbs that are there. Uh, Harry Neff playing the doctor, for example. Uh, I, I was saying that, and again, this is just me, everybody. I always thought that Alan was queer. That's how I played with Alan in 1975. Nobody told me that, but that was just what I assumed. But, but everyone in my family who didn't play with Barbie did not agree with that at all. So I, I just want to say that there's something really troubling about the movie in terms of how simple the binary is, unless you go deeper and say, she's trying to show just how simple the binary is and that people like Weird Barbie and Alan don't fit. Um, but it isn't that film. So I, I, I guess that was something that, I, that I've turned over, over and over in my head. Danielle, did you want to add something to that? No, just to say, like, I 1000% agree with that, like the that there are these breadcrumbs, but like, there is something, ultimately, there's, there's something unsatisfying about there just being breadcrumbs, because also there are like, breadcrumbs in so many things, right? And the, the sort of, I was saying this to a group of friends this morning, that like, there's something about ending on the like, going to the gynecologist joke that fe that like reinforces the sort of like, not only the binary, but like the embodied experience of the gender binary that was deeply troubling to me, like after a movie that felt like it was poking in all of these places for subversion. And then it's like, and also vaginas. And it's like, okay, we almost got there. like. And, and again, I don't think, like, Susan, I think you're right. Like, I don't think Gerwig set out to make a movie about, like, a, a deep commentary on the gender binary. I think we can get there in our conversations, but also there's a kind of reinforcing that happens at the end that just felt disappointing to me. 
Yeah, and and I think on some level this this may be part of the critique, the neoliberal critique, because the the intellectual property is based on these dolls, right? That that are generally not in any way. I mean, Susan, I understand that Alan may have been queer, but the presentation of the Mattel dolls is that there is Barbie, who's female, and Ken, who's male. Neither of them have any genitalia, um, but that they, you know, the perception is such that. Um, and and so I think that there is a limit to the queerness that was introduced in the film. I absolutely agree with you. And I think Kate McKinnon's character is about as much as we got in this particular film, um, which then does lead to this question of the underlying sort of corporateness um, of what's going on here um, and the fact that the marketing team between Warner Brothers and, um, and Mattel were wizards, apparently, um, in terms of how they, they sort of got this into the zeitgeist. Um, but I also think that this is part of the critique of the film itself because it's limited by the IP from Mattel. Yeah. So, so, so I guess, I mean, I'm curious about, um, you know, given that we've talked about breadcrumbs and we've talked about like, as a sort of, as someone who studies literature and the various kinds of signifying that, you know, visuals and words do, whether you think that um, she's not kind of undermining, you know, clearly it's a neoliberal umbrella under which she's making the film but then if she if she sort of satirizes it enough that you can come out of it laughing and feeling as though so what's the role of ruth handler in it it turns out this big corporation has you know is that reinforcing or is it in fact um you know undermining that that boardroom full of full of men um and is she in fact creating more questions could she have pushed it more i mean i would love to know if if you all have thoughts on this um whether you think that she uh, there were sort of restrictions on you know how much she could signify you know how much she could ironize and um and and given that you know mattel is also a funder and a promoter of of the movie susan I, i couldn't agree with that more. Uh, I I think that she herself has described some of these interactions. And I think uh, I want to be very, very careful in this conversation and all conversations to not hold Greta Gerwig to a standard that we don't hold any other director to. So, and I, and I think there's been a lot of that. So it's been like, well, we see the binary and we see all sorts of um, uh, uh, patriarchy in lots and lots of films but nobody criticizes them. So we, we have to be very, very careful that anything that I say about how there is a lack of trans representation or a, there's a modicum of trans representation uh, should be applied to all directors. And we should, we should not just have the conversation about her. She shouldn't have to always be defending it. But she did make a film about feminism. And she did make a film that sort of suggests that this is uh, capitalist and it's a tool used to get girls to buy stuff. Um, yet she's using the money from that company. And so I, I think, as has been said earlier in the conversation, we just have to keep holding two things in the same hands. So in one hand, this is a complete scam to make people buy pink and Barbie things. And all those things are ready for people to buy. And second, she used that money and she did what she could to be as subversive as she could to at least include some criticism. I thought that was part of the weakest uh, elements of the movie. I thought that Keystone Cop Will Ferrell with the executives running around. I like I just and I hate car chases. So I thought all of that was just dumb and not not for me. I don't need that. And I did I didn't think that that was particularly excellent. I I do think this idea of what is Ruth doing sitting in a room 
apart. That's a very powerful image. So maybe I give her some credit for that. Although Ruth herself was trying to make money, like she's part of that world in which she was trying to make a life for herself, which includes the kind of um, financial success that comes with developing a great toy. So I I don't know. I don't think this is a particularly um, effective critique of capitalism. And uh, and I and I I haven't bought anything. So not one <laughs> thing. So it wasn't successful in my house, but I, it seems to have been very successful in a lot of places. Danielle. I, th- I think, yeah, I think also like the, like all movies are, maybe not all movies. I wouldn't say Oppenheimer is like going out and making people like buy <laughs> nuclear weapons, I hope, but like, right, like, <laughs> This movie felt didn't feel different in that regard than like like Star Wars, Lilo and Stitch, like uh, pick your favorite, like Finding Nemo, like pick your favorite other like big corporate tentpole MCU. movie, like MCU exactly. Like it it didn't feel different than that, and it's like we don't. I mean, some of us on this call do have com- that that conversation about those movies. But Susan, to your point about like not holding Gerwig to a flame that we don't hold other directors to like I don't know I don't see most people out there being like Kevin Feige is like just in it for the money it's like of course he's in it for the money like we live in a we live in a society that like forces us to be in it for the money so like I'm less bothered by the like the neoliberalism and capitalism of it all only because it's like that is the condition that's like the condition of our existence Maybe it makes me a bad millennial. <laughs> I just want to, I want to very quickly insert that I I was personally very struck by the uh, daughter of the Gloria character, right? Who says you betrayed us, and it's I mean there was no desire there for a Barbie. I thought that was quite powerful as well. And she got in trouble for that line when Sasha says like these are I think she says they're fascist dolls, yes. right? Um, and I want to just push one thing in, which is I also saw Oppenheimer not the same day, Danielle. That's really my my kudos to you. But I walked out of that movie, and I have a lot of nice things to say about that film. But one thing that that film fails is Feminism 101. Every scene with a woman is simply there so we can see her breasts, her lips, admire her. It is simply a movie about men and the ideas that they have and the occasional ways that they have sex with women and that screws up the relationships among the men. And I, and I walked out and I thought, what, why didn't anybody just say to the team, okay, like you can't do that. So, so I think that I want to be very careful criticizing her because it, it, is, it is a lot to make a film that isn't Oppenheimer. And we assume that that Oppenheimer uh, just ignoring women is just that's the norm. And somehow she departed from it. She did. And I think, again, we, we can criticize and hold up at the same time. I agree with that. I I feel like any film that uses the word patriarchy multiple times in a non ironic way, I'm I'm like, I'm going to give it some benefit of the doubt for doing something to the cultural conversation. Um, but a couple of things. One, I, I do think that Ruth Handler character is really, really interesting. And of course, that montage at the end where she says, um, you know, take my hand, close your eyes, feel. And we see um, the mothers, the daughters, all these different women um, is really powerful. Um, but, you know, she puts the things in there about, oh, yeah, she lost control of this company and she had these tax evasion issues. And to me, it does actually a useful thing of like, um, kind of along the lines of what you're saying, Susan, like, let's not put anybody or anything so high up on the pedestal that it has to be perfect. Like even feminism itself is, you know, this multi-dimensional thing that changes and is self-reflexive and gets things wrong and can be racist or colonialist or whatever, and then tries to do better, hopefully, and has these conversations. So I thought that was kind of built into the film a little bit, which I appreciated. And then to the, maybe not so much the capitalist part, but the neoliberal part. I thought about this actually a lot after seeing the film, um, 
the part where Barbie, when she gets to the real world, is like, the, all these girls and women are going to thank us because we fixed everything. Like, we, we're all powerful. We do all the jobs. We have all these role models. Like, we fixed everything for women in the real world. And then she gets there, and it's not just that they don't appreciate it, but in fact, everything isn't fixed. And to me, that was a really um, clever critique of the idea that we just need to have the right beliefs or the right ideas or some self-confidence or the idea that we can do it and it will all be fixed, which I find really present in neoliberal kind of post-feminist language. And I don't buy it. I think structures matter, you know, all these things. And so that little bit of kind of a critique built into the plot, I found really helpful. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right, Linda. I hadn't even thought about that in that context, but that is um, a super acute thinking on what what that critique was bringing to us as moviegoers um, in terms of moving between worlds too, um, from the, the the cute and funny Barbie world to the real world, and you know where we see these distinctions. Um, <clears throat> So uh, in, in some concluding thoughts on the corporate relationship, which we've touched on, and, you know, this, again, apparently marketing teams across the globe are looking at how um, Warner Brothers and Mattel threaded this needle um, and that it it apparently we are all, you know, in our ne- neoliberal experience, as Danielle said, living in a capitalist world, um, that we've all fallen prey, even if we haven't bought anything pink. And I liked pink before the movie. Um, you know, I've got a lot of pink yarn that I need to knit up into things. Um, and and so, you know, this is not, not a new color for me. Um, but I, I am curious as to you know, sort of the, the sort of waves that we are experiencing in terms of seeing, seeing the Barbiness everywhere. Susan. Uh, I, I'm not sure this is exactly what you want, but I think that what has been said at the, throughout the podcast and especially at the beginning about what does it mean that people wanted to go to the movies and get dressed up and get excited and contact their friends and organize to go to a movie and which group and we'll go a second time. I think this is really, really important. I think people have been streaming things on their phone. I think this is very generational. Uh, the suggestion to go to the movies, I teach a film class and my students don't watch films in together in a communal setting. They stream them. They, 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 they watch them on teeny tiny screens. And I always tell them about this moment when I saw Do the Right Thing, when it came out, and I was at, went to a theater on the south side of Chicago, and the intensity in that theater from the second that the, Martin, uh, the Malcolm X quote appears and people were talking to that quote, talking to Malcolm, just with a black screen and some words, and then when they left, when we left as a group, the crackle of excitement it was something I have never forgotten. And that is, you know, almost 30 years ago. And I, I think that is something that perhaps we're at a moment that we're ready for because we've had all this streaming and all of this freedom. We've had all this COVID and all of this deprivation and all of these restrictions. And there was something about this idea of going to the movies and getting dressed up um, and perhaps taking this back. It goes back to something that... Um, I think it was Suchi said this at the beginning, yet we have to embrace the joy, not just the trauma. And so that goes with that, that somehow what we're trying to do is, is recognize that we have to find that joy and we have to find it with others. And I think it was really charming to see the different groups, groups of women, couples, families, all sorts of people seeing this film together. And I think that's a remarkably powerful thing to pull off, whether it was for capitalism or for mentioning and questioning patriarchy in a mainstream film. Danielle. 
Yeah, and just to, I think, to extend that a little bit, like, I think that the marketing of it was, like, a little bit in on the joke, right? Like, the fact that people are, like, getting into these massive Barbie boxes, which is, like, such a bonkers thing, and that's part of the movie, right? Like, she's in the Barbie box, and she's, like, oh, I am trapped. Like, this is a prison. Like, there's something about... Movies are marketed all the time, and I'm not, like... I go to the movies every week, and I'm never, like influenced to see a movie because of the marketing but there was something about barbie and specifically something about like the barbie oppenheimer like (laughs) dual world situation that pulled me to see both of them and i think part of it is like yes go see this with your friends this is an event this is people and also like this could be a disaster, but like, we are all in on this. And so like, be all in on this with each other. Like it's, it's about the joy. And it's also about that, like, like unabashed desire to like tap into nostalgia, to tap into joy, to tap into friendship. Like there's something unabashed about the marketing of Barbie that, that somehow worked and had like this alchemy that I think doesn't always work, at least not on like my generation. (laughs) Shuchi. So, uh, so I agree with, you know, everything that, that um, Susan and Danielle have said about the communal experience and the joy. And I was, you know, that's what I experienced too, but I am troubled. And I feel like when we're talking about neoliberalism and marketing, uh, that needs to be said. I am troubled by the fact that, uh, I don't know if this is still the case, but Barbies, again, like most other, you know, um, industry are manufactured in parts of Asia, China, Malaysia, Indonesia. And as you might expect, you know, it's women who are doing low paid work. Um, And I just feel like if I'm going to talk about this, that I also want to put that out, you know, front and center. Um, So what does it mean for us? Are we really trapped into consuming something, the labor practices of which we uh, do critique so strongly, right? Um, and that we have critiqued. Like, I mean, I yes, we are trapped in capitalism to some extent. But then that raises for me this question of, you know, how do we how do we act within that box, right? And I feel like I would um, separate the movie event in that case from the actual doll and its manufacturer. And I feel like that's something Greta Gerwig has done so brilliantly. In a way, the fact that you want to do that is her triumph. Like, I don't want to hand it all to Mattel. So, I, I agree with you in terms of not handing it all to Mattel, that this is, in fact, an artistic creation that Gerwig, you know, made, that Margot Robbie created with her, um, and Ryan Gosling created with her, um, and Kate McKinnon, um, and that it is distinct from the the plastic dolls that are in fact made in Southeast Asia or Asia. Susan. And I wanted to just call out Margot Robbie. She's really not, shouldn't be in that list. She spotted this early on. She understood this as a potential vehicle for herself. And so much of, uh, you know, the conversation has been about Ken and the lines that Ken is given and the kind of, you know, uh, comedy that and the dancing that the Kens do. But really, you know, she was spotting this as something that she wanted. And I think she doesn't just want it to walk around and have the message be, look at me, I'm blue eyed and blonde and, and I can make a lot of money. I think that she wants both. And she's allowed to have both. And I think that this conversation has kind of been about that. But Suji, I couldn't agree more that that we have to separate that manufacturer and who it harms. And that hasn't been called out, I think, as nearly as much as it should be. Yeah. Um, Linda, you get the last word. Oh my goodness. I don't know that there is a last word on this, actually, (laughs) which is one of the greatest things about it. But um, I do think that the movie doesn't read for most of us as a commercial for Mattel, which is fantastic and um, allows us to make some of these really great critiques that you're making sushi. And um, I, I do think that a lot of the stuff they're selling is kind of nostalgic. Like it's not dolls. It's like women buying t-shirts or mugs or something that say Barbie on them or other pink sparkly things. And I think, um, 
part of what the film is allowing us to do, just like the sort of question at the end to Barbie is, do you want to be the thing and the idea? Or do you want to be the person who imagines and who makes the thing? And it's kind of opened a door for all of us to say, what is the idea that we have all had imposed on us? And do we want to be the makers and the imaginers instead? And what does it mean to do that? And I think this conversation has done that for me beautifully. Thank you. Thank you all for joining me today. I want to thank Linda Beal, Danielle Hanley, Shuchi Kapila, and Susan LaBelle for participating in this fabulous conversation about all things Barbie um, for Postscript on the New Books Network. It was great to be able to chat with all of you. Thank you, Lily. Thanks, Lily. Thank you.